Good morning, everyone. It is just a joy to see you all this morning, this Easter morning, the happiest day on the Christian calendar. This is why we're Christians, because Jesus has risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. And so today we're going to talk about that, the power of Jesus's resurrection. But before we get into the message, we want to go to the Lord and uh, just thank him and uh, offer him uh, our worship. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for Easter Sunday. Uh, Friday is a tough day as we contemplate the death of Jesus on the cross and uh, the pain and uh, all that it meant, Lord. Uh, And there's a saying that uh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, Lord, and Sunday is now here. And so we just praise you, Lord. We give you thanks. Uh, We just worship you today and thank you for the resurrection and all that it means for the Christian faith, Lord. And uh, so we just pray that uh, you're pleased with our worship this morning and uh, we give you all honor and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my message today is called The Power of Jesus' Resurrection. Now, a bolt of lightning uh, is incredibly powerful, right? Uh, A typical lightning bolt carries something like 300 million volts and 300 million uh, volts and 30,000 amps. Now, I have no idea what a volt or an amp is, but I can tell you that it's really, really powerful. Like by contrast, your house has 120 uh, volts and about uh, 15 amps, and still that can kill you, right? So a bolt of lightning is incredibly powerful, and being struck by lightning is life-changing to say the least. Uh, they say that 10% of people who are struck by lightning actually die from it, which is a surprising number to me, right? I'd expect that that number would be much higher. Uh, but the other 90% all have uh, life-changing injuries uh, as a result. So uh, those struck by lightning are never the same. And that's something akin to the power of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is even a, a more powerful and obviously more significant event and even a more rare event, right? Uh, lightning strikes about 250 people a year uh, in the United States, but Jesus rose from the dead only one time. And though incredibly powerful, those struck by lightning are the ones who are affected. <clears throat> They're physically affected. Uh, but Jesus' resurrection affects everyone who ever lived uh, and whoever will live. Lightning strikes are physical events with no spiritual consequences, but Jesus' resurrection was a physical event with spiritual consequences, uh, which will determine where each one of us spends our eternity. So we talk about the gospel and the resurrection in here every single Sunday, but especially on Easter Sunday, this is the focus of what it means to be a Christian. But what would happen? What would it mean if Jesus did not rise from the dead? What would be the outcome? What would be the result to our faith if the resurrection story was just something that the disciples made up, that they invented 2,000 years ago? Well, Paul began the passage that we're looking at today asking that very question, what would happen if the resurrection is not true? And in a word, our faith would be useless. It would be useless. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our faith. The very bedrock of the Christian faith is the resurrection. Without it, there is no Christianity. So we'll begin by addressing uh, these these hypothetical questions that that Paul asks and these consequences uh, of there being no Christianity because there is no resurrection. Then we'll talk about why we do believe in the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection, and then we'll talk about what it means for us. So this Sunday, uh, we just need to know in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
Because our faith, our Christian faith, is not a check-your-brains-at-the-door Christian faith and just believe blindly. Uh, that's not what it is. Uh, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. And my goal is to show you that this is an actual historical event, uh, that Jesus rose from the dead, and by it he defeated sin, he defeated death and the devil, and that through faith in him we have eternal life. So the first thing we're going to talk about is these five devastating effects that Paul talks about if the resurrection is not true. So here's Paul's hypothetical. Uh, what, is, what, what, if, what if there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead as some of them believed? You know, the, the Sadducees were a religious sect uh, that existed in the first century, and part of their theology was that there is no such thing as the resurrection and there's no such thing as life after death. And that is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you didn't leave me up here with that one. <laughs> the wealthy, the Sadducees, these were the wealthy aristocracy, right? These were the ones who made up the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so their teaching, of course, was very influential. So Paul is answering very real objections, very real beliefs in these verses. And Paul states the problem using two if-then statements, one positive and one negative. So here's the first one, the, the, positive, um, the positive statement. If Christ has been raised, well, then how can you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And then the negative statement, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. So that's verses 12 and 13 that were read for us earlier. So we can see that, that these two statements are contradictory, right? Either one of them is true or the other, but they can't both be true. Uh, either there is no such thing as the resurrection and Christ could not have been raised, or there is such thing as the resurrection and Christ has been raised. So Paul lists these five devastating effects if, in fact, uh, the Sadducees and their followers are right that there is no resurrection from the dead. And this is what he's talking about in verses 14 to 19. So the first thing we see is that preaching Christ is useless. This is verse 14a. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Now, we know that Paul was one of the Jewish elites, right? Uh, he was, uh, had the highest possible education that you could have. Uh, and he was rising in Judaism up the ranks faster than any of his peers. Paul was headed for really big things. He was going to be a big deal in Judaism. But then in Acts 9, as he's uh, on this mission to round up these Christians who he thought were heretics uh, on the way to Damascus so we could bring them back to Jerusalem to face punishment, well, he met the risen Christ who, like a bolt of lightning, locked, knocked him right off of his horse. Uh, and then uh, he, he was blinded. Uh, the Lord spoke to him, convicted him of sin and of denying Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus changed Paul's life. And Paul spent the rest of his life uh, traveling around all the known world, uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And through faith in him, you can have eternal life. But what if Paul imagined it all? Uh, what if Paul just had a hallucination out there in the desert? It gets hot out there and maybe he didn't have enough water, right? Uh, but we know that that's not true because there are people with Paul. Uh, the people who were with Paul heard the voice as well, and, and they knew that they had heard something. They just couldn't quite identify what it was. 
So Paul knows that he's speaking the truth, but if it wasn't true, just hypothetically, if it wasn't true, that means Jesus has not been raised from the dead. That means that Paul never met the risen Jesus. That means Paul would have wasted his life preaching something that was false. And not only Paul, but the other apostles and Barnabas and Silas and Apollos and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila and you and I, anyone who preaches the gospel, it's all in vain if Christ has not been raised. So that's the first devastating effect. The second devastating effect is that our faith would also be in vain. Uh, verse 14 now, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Now, Christians believe that because God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us as well. That's the foundation of our hope. But if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, uh, the very pillar on which Christianity is built collapses. And so without the resurrection, our faith is no different than any other faith that's out there. Uh, Jesus might be considered a great ethical teacher, right? And, and some religions do consider him a great ethical teacher, but he would still be in the grave, just like Muhammad, just like Buddha, just like Gandhi, just like Joseph Smith. So if Jesus is not alive, our faith is worthless, it's empty, and it's futile. So that's the second devastating effect. The third one is that we are false witnesses of God, verses 15 and 16. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. You know, God's very nature is truth. One of the commandments that God gave to Moses, or that, that God gave to Moses is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? So you have to be testified truthfully. Um, he commanded the Israelites in Deuteronomy to stone any false prophets because they were speaking words that were false because they were not from God. Uh, in, G in John 17, Jesus said of God, your word is truth. Your very word is truth. And then uh, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But on the other hand, Jesus said that Satan was the father of lies and, and that the Pharisees, uh, because they were trying to kill Jesus, he accused the Pharisees of being Satan's children in John chapter 8. And so truth versus lies. God is the father of lies. He loves the truth. And if Paul, the other apostles, and Christians throughout the 2,000 years since Christ has risen from the dead uh, testified that Christ has been raised when he wasn't, then all these 2,000 years of preachers and teachers of the word uh, would be liars. And God hates lies. Now, other religions tell lies, uh, and they manipulate people with their lies. Uh, but, but they lead their followers straight to hell with their deception. Uh, and Christians would be no different if the resurrection is not true, if God did not raise Jesus from the dead. So that's the third devastating effect. The second devastating, I'm sorry, the third, third devastating effect. The fourth devastating effect is that believers dead and alive would still be in their sin. And that's verses 17 and 18. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then, those, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now to me, this is the most tragic consequence of all if Christ has not been raised. We and all those who have ever lived, both dead and alive, who have placed their trust in Christ for salvation, we're all still in our sin. And to be in our sin means that we still owe God 
the penalty that we deserve for the sins that we committed while on earth. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead and took the responsibility, the blame, the guilt, and the punishment for our sins. God raised Jesus from the dead to show that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And God is just. He won't punish the same sin twice. So he laid the punishment on Jesus. He's not going to punish us for the, for, the, for the sin that Jesus already paid for. And so since he's already punished Jesus, we won't face that punishment. And when God looks at us and considers everything he's, we've ever done that is sinful, uh, he says, you are covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid for your sin. Welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Our slate is clean. Our bill is paid. And so if Jesus has not been raised, well then, our sins have not been paid for. Our slate is not clean, and we owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. And God doesn't let people into his perfect kingdom who are stained by sin. Uh, and, and we can't get in because we think that we're good enough or because our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. God doesn't let anyone into heaven because they are good people. There, there are no good people. No one is good enough according to God's standard of perfection to get into heaven. So we've all been born with a sin nature, and we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And without faith in Jesus' work on the cross that paid for our sins, and the resurrection that proves Jesus is alive and that God was satisfied with his sacrifice, you and I would have no hope. We have no hope at all. And for that reason, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, that brings us to the fifth devastating effect, and that is that Christians are the most pitiable people of all. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, there isn't anything sadder than misplaced hope. I grieve for the people uh, who have placed their faith in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ for their salvation. Uh, most Mormons and Muslims and Hindus are really good neighbors, right? And they're really nice people, and we can get along with them very well, but they reject Jesus, and that's where we part company. And I shudder at what is going to happen to them, the penalty that they're going to pay for their unbelief. And that's the same penalty that would befall us if Jesus was not raised. So to, to spend your life believing in something that is false and then to stake your eternity on it, I think is truly the most pitiable thing there is. So five devastating effects, but praise the Lord, Jesus Christ has been raised. And that's what Paul says in verse 20. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now this term, first fruits, is an agricultural term. It comes from the harvest. Uh, God required the Jews uh, to pay over, uh, to offer the first part of their harvest before they harvested the rest of the crops, before they harvested the rest of the crops. And so they're pledging their trust in God that as they harvest the crops and then offer them up to God, now they, now they have no crops, right? They're, they're, they're uh, trusting God that he's going to provide the rest, that the rest of the harvest is going to come in. Uh, when you and I put down a deposit on a car or a house, we're making a good faith pledge. We're handing over earnest money, uh, trying to convince the lender or the seller of the car or the house that we're good for the rest, right? That we will pay the rest of the money over time. Well, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what that means is that his resurrection is God's promise 
and pledge that God will raise all who believe in Jesus just as he raised Jesus for salvation too. But Jesus could not be the first fruits if the dead are not raised. So let's consider now some of the proof uh, and the truth of Paul's statement, but the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I am absolutely 100% convinced of the truth of the resurrection. I would not be a Christian if I were not. When I was searching, it was the resurrection and the proof thereof that convinced me that this whole Christianity thing was true, right? That the resurrection is true, and because of it, it has spiritual significance, and that's what uh, got me started on my journey. Uh, This faith is not a blind faith, as I said. It's based on real evidence, uh, and I believe it just as if I saw it, witnessed it myself with my own two eyes. Well, why? Why would I feel so strongly about that? It's because of what the Gospels and the other epistles tell us, and we can piece together a whole bunch of facts from what we know from the Bible. And the first thing we know is that the tomb was empty. The women went out early on a Sunday morning, and they found an empty tomb. Matthew 27 says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So the women saw where he was buried. Uh, They knew where it was. They had not forgotten from Friday to Sunday where this body was placed. And they went to the right tomb, and they found it empty. And then Peter and John came, and they found the tomb empty. And I would add that if you were trying to tell a story and convince people that it was true in the first century, you would never in a million years say that it was women who found the tomb empty. He would never say that, but all four Gospels agree that that's true. And that's because women's testimony was deemed worthless and inadmissible in the first century. So if you're going to invent a story, you would never say women found the tomb. You would say men found the tomb. Peter and John were the first ones to find it. So the tomb was empty. The second thing is that the disciples could not have stolen the body. You know, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers, uh, trained Roman soldiers who would have killed anyone in a heartbeat if they tried to steal this body. And they too were highly motivated themselves because if they let somebody steal that body, they would have been killed by their superiors. The Jewish leaders were worried that the apostles might try to steal the body. And so they said to Pilate in Matthew 27, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. So these Roman guards sealed the tomb. They stood guard there, and theft was impossible. And just as an aside, when Jesus left the tomb, their grave clothes were still in the tomb, right? So if you're going to steal a body uh, and you've got to do it quickly, you are not going to spend the time to unwrap the grave clothes and fold the headscarf very nicely, right? You're going to grab the whole body and the grave clothes too. And the reason why the grave clothes were still there was because Jesus passed through them when he was resurrected and passed through the stone wall as well. The angel didn't open up the tomb so that Jesus could get out, but so that the apostles, the women, could get in. So theft was impossible. The disciples could not have stolen the body. The third bit of evidence that I'd like to bring up is that the Jewish authorities admitted that the tomb was empty, and they invented a story to cover up the the, uh, resurrection and to protect the soldiers who guarded the tomb. 
so that they wouldn't get in trouble. So the Jews wanted to locate the body. They would have been tearing the place apart trying to find the body because if Jesus was resurrected, well, then they would have to uh, somehow deal with that truth. So they said to the guards, Matthew 28, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story has been widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So here's where we get the story from, that the, that the, uh, the body had been stolen, but we just said that it could not possibly have been stolen. It's clearly a lie. Uh, the Jewish authorities, who were adversaries, knew that the tomb was empty. A fourth bit of evidence is that Jesus appeared to witnesses at least 15 times after his resurrection. We get a whole list of them in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, and Paul said there that he appeared to 500 witnesses at one time. And so Paul was saying, uh, some of these folks are still alive. You can go there. You can interview them yourself. He was challenging them to do that. And the fifth bit of evidence I'd like to mention is that the apostles' lives were transformed. Now, these guys went from quaking in their boots, right, hiding in a room somewhere, afraid that the Jewish authorities were going to do the same to them as they did to Jesus. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, they go to out proclaiming the gospel in front of the Jewish leaders in the synagogues, uh, wherever they can go in public. Uh, Peter, for one, denied Jesus three times, right? He was questioned by a slave girl and couldn't even stand up to that. But after the resurrection, he preached in front of the most powerful people that there were, courageously spreading the gospel, even though he risked his life in doing it. And he was crucified upside down, according to tradition, about 30 years later, because uh, he did not deem himself worthy of being crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Now, no one dies for something that they know to be a lie. No one does that. James was Jesus' own brother. He didn't believe in Jesus while he was alive, but after the resurrection, he saw the risen Christ, and he became the leader of the first century church. And this James was thrown off of the top of a large building and then stoned to death when the fall from the building didn't kill him. How do we explain Paul's life if the resurrection never happened? He was living the good and prosperous life as, as a, a rising star in Judaism, and he threw it all away, counting everything that he had as loss compared to the riches of knowing Jesus Christ. And he was beheaded by Nero 30 years later. Thomas didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, he was not there when Jesus appeared to them the first time, and he said, I will not believe unless I put my fingers in the nail prints, into the scars. Uh, that's when I'll believe. And then when Jesus appeared to Thomas, uh, he said, my Lord and my God. And then Thomas took the gospel uh, to India, according to tradition, and was killed there. In fact, each and every one of the apostles, other than John, was killed because they would not stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I just don't believe that all of these guys would go to their deaths willingly, knowing that something was a lie. Uh, they knew that the resurrection was true. They had seen the risen Christ and knew that he was alive. So what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us? 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So let's talk about how death came by a man. You know, life in the Garden of Eden was perfect, right? There was no sin, there was no death. God walked with man. 
But when Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate the forbidden fruit, sin and death entered into the world and everything changed at that moment. And every person ever born uh, after that time has been born with a sin nature. And so every person is guilty before God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, uh, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. This is what we call the human predicament. We are born with a sin nature, and we sin. And there is nothing that we can do to buy ourselves out of this human predicament that we're in. And so praise the Lord that he has provided a way out. He's always had the solution to this human predicament, and it's Jesus. That's why Jesus came and lived a perfect life and rose from the dead, because he took the punishment for our sins. So death came by a man, but then resurrection came by a man. The Bible testifies from cover to cover that Jesus is God. Genesis 1 gives us hints in the very beginning, right? Uh, it says, let, God said, let us make God in our image, right? So there is more than one person there. The Bible testifies that Jesus was the creator. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. Uh, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Paul talked in Philippians 2 about how Jesus, uh, being eternally God, humbled himself, became a man, died on a cross for our sins. Uh, born of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was, without a sin nature, and never having sinned, he was the unblemished lamb, the final sacrifice that God demands for our sin. Before Jesus, the Jews had to offer animal sacrifices to atone for their sins, but now that Jesus has offered himself as the final and perfect sacrifice for sin, fully acceptable to God, and because God raised him from the dead, now animal sacrifice is no longer necessary to atone for sin. Faith in Jesus is what atones for our sin. And so all we need to do to, to pay for our sin is to believe in Jesus for salvation. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So resurrection comes by one man, Jesus Christ, and resurrection comes to all of us who will believe. And when we believe, uh, God credits us with Jesus' righteousness, and he credits Jesus with our sin. Our sin debt is paid in full, and God promises to resurrect us from the dead as he did Jesus. It's the best deal you could ever get. So all that's left is our decision. Will we die in Adam, or will we be made alive in Christ? These are the two options. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, Martin Luther is credited with saying, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Well, what does that mean? Well, everyone is born once physically, right? We've all come out of our mother's wounds, and that's our physical birth. But the second birth is the rebirth, the birth of the Spirit that Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said to him, you must be born again. Uh, Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? Can I go back in my mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus said, no, you must be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws us to faith in Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives us new life, and we believe. That's the second birth. So everyone who is born again, who is born twice, will die only once. Immediately on our deaths, we'll be ushered by the angels into God's presence, where we will spend all of our eternity with Jesus and with God. 
But those who only experience physical birth and never experience spiritual rebirth, they're only born once and they'll die twice. Their physical death is their first death. Uh, because they never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, though, they remain in their sin, which means they will also experience the second death, which is the spiritual death. Spiritual death means that God respects their decision to reject Jesus during their lifetime and gives them what they wanted during their lifetime, separation from Jesus, and he gives that to them for all eternity. So we can either be born once and die twice, or we can be born twice and die once. We all have to decide. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we've been born twice. God looks at us and he sees his perfect son. Our place in heaven for all eternity is secure, and so we should live with joy. We should love others and serve them, and we should tell others about Jesus so that they too can experience this second birth. But if there's anybody here who has not been reborn, who has not experienced the second birth, I just ask you today, I plead with you today, what's holding you back? I've mentioned some of the proof of Jesus' resurrection, but I've just scratched the surface. There's so much more. Uh, do your own research. The resurrection is a historical fact. So if you are, have come here today and you don't believe, will you continue to reject the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and that that, that has spiritual meaning for you? Uh, that would be an extremely foolish position to take, to, to continue to not decide, to continue to ignore the truth. You know, just this week, 24-year-old quarterback, uh, Dwayne Haskins, was walking across the street, and he got hit by a truck and killed, right? Killed instantly. Uh, this week, in the New York subway, some madman dropped some uh, tear gas and then started firing off guns. At least 10 people shot. Nobody killed, thankfully. But you never know when your last day is going to be. I don't know if there's a lightning strike in the forecast, but it could happen. You could get struck by lightning today. Uh, and so we're not guaranteed another day. Uh, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And waiting to decide might be the most costly decision uh, you ever make. Where would you spend eternity if you died today? Thanks be to God. He's offered us a way out of the human predicament. It's through Jesus Christ, but it's only through Jesus Christ. Everyone is invited, but you have to come. And so all you have to do is ask him to forgive your sins and have him be your Lord and Savior, and, and you're saved. Jesus is alive. He's inviting you to come to him now, and he'll immediately save you from your sins. He's not going to eliminate every hardship in your life. That's not what Christianity is. But it is the, the joy and the peace of knowing where we will spend our eternity. And that, that peace will get us through the hard times. Your life is going to have new meaning. It's going to have new purpose as you live it for him rather, rather than chasing wealth and retirement and material things. Uh, Jesus offers us peace and eternity for today. And it's all because of the immense love that Jesus Christ showed when he poured out his blood on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Jesus is alive, brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Lord God, we just thank you so much for Resurrection Sunday, Lord. Without it, we don't have any hope. Uh, but with it, Lord, we know where we will spend our eternity and that it's secure, Lord. We thank you so much for the sacrifice and for your great plan in redeeming us from sin, Lord. We give you all honor and praise in Christ's precious name. Amen.